My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Initially, there were some mass protests. There was a couple of major rallies at the legislature in Victoria. And there were also like occupations that took place. And the idea was that this was one of those rare moments where you could mobilize an entire province virtually against the far right. And so plans for that started developing. There were plans for the unions to start going out. That's the voice of David Spanner. He's today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Despite happening well within living memory, being one of the largest grassroots uprisings in Canadian history, and coming within a hair's breadth of turning into a general strike, The struggle at the centre of today's episode has received little attention in historical and cultural work and is little remembered. So, David Spanner decided to write a book about it. Solidarity, Canada's Unknown Revolution of 1983, published last year by Ronsdale Press, is heavily based on interviews with participants in the uprising and is told largely through people's experiences, while also drawing plenty of connections with broader histories. One part of Spanner's inspiration for writing this book was that he lived the events that it covers. Back in 1983, he had been part of movements himself and was already a writer, having cut his teeth in the underground press. He had just gotten his first mainstream position at a daily newspaper in Vancouver, where he covered these events firsthand. In those years, BC's electoral politics were split between the hard-right Social Credit Party and an NDP still quite a bit to the left of today's iteration of the party. After winning an election they had been expected to lose, the Socreds, in the spirit of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, introduced 27 pieces of legislation in one day, attacking pretty much every service, right, and sector of the population that you would expect a right-wing government to attack. British Columbia in those years was also a vibrant hub for social movements, and had been for decades. Though things had faded somewhat by 1983, there was still a sizable and active labor movement, and lots of participants in and veterans of other movements who were very much opposed to what the Socreds were doing, and who knew how to organize. And there were significant broader publics who had perhaps never been active themselves, but who had been shaped by those movements and knew which side they were on. The initial shock and anger at the legislative onslaught became conversations and meetings, and soon escalated to demonstrations, marches, and even occupations. The resistance cohered into two distinct but often cooperating coalitions. Operation Solidarity brought together the unions, both those in the BC Federation of Labour and others, and the Solidarity Coalition brought together pretty much all of the other popular movements in the province. It was one of those moments that took on a spirit and a momentum that happens only once or twice in a generation. People were working tirelessly and extending the reach of movements to different communities, different workplaces, different segments of the population, and people were responding in unprecedented numbers, with their presence at protests, with their enthusiasm, and with their energy. In the inevitable discussions about how to move forward, how to continue escalating, how to win, there was vocal support in both branches of the Solidarity Movement for the idea of a general strike. And pretty soon, it was well on its way to happening. 
The plan was for the unions to go out in a staggered way, and by the climax of the struggle in October, the province's teachers, the main provincial public sector union, and a number of other unions were out. But the movement ended suddenly, in an act widely characterized as a betrayal that echoed through BC movement politics for decades after. A subset of union leaders did not want a general strike, and at least some seemed actively hostile to the goals of elements of the Solidarity Coalition like the women's movement and the gay movement. So those leaders made a separate deal with the province that carved out a few modest gains for unions and nothing for anybody else. Spanner emphasized, quote, I think that the overall legacy of Solidarity is much greater than its anticlimactic ending, end quote. The relationships that were built during the struggle fed into future movement work in a million small ways, and the intense coalitional organizing helped burst movements out of their separate silos. Moreover, even if it did not ultimately succeed, it was a glimpse of the power that popular movements can have. I speak with Spanner about his book, Solidarity Canada's Unknown Revolution of 1983, and about the uprising it documents. My name's David Spanner. I'm a writer from Vancouver, and I've written a book called Solidarity, Canada's Unknown Revolution of 1983, about a social uprising that swept BC in opposition to a far-right provincial government back in 1983. My background is I'd worked in the alternative press, the underground press. In 1983, I'd gotten my first job at a mainstream publication in the Vancouver area. And just shortly after that, there was this huge social uprising across the province. And so I ended up covering it for the next while. What happened was in 1983, it was expected that the NDP was going to be elected, the provincial government. But the Social Credit Party, which is a very conservative party, was re-elected. And in July of that year, they surprised a lot of people with this legislative package that pretty much offended everybody and attacked everybody. Unions, the women's movement, minorities. I mean, it was like an all-out assault on every social program, every union right, everything that had been achieved by social activists as far as social programs and that sort of thing. And so it was this all-out assault on the BC population or a good portion of it. What surprised the provincial government and surprised everybody really was the extent of the resistance to this. All across the province, there was a social rising and a movement formed under the name Solidarity. There was basically three components of it. There was Operation Solidarity, which were the unions. There was a Solidarity Coalition, which were community groups and other activists and left-wing activists and various assorted activists from different movements. And the third was the general population, many of whom had never been active before, politically active, and completely outraged by this legislation. And so over the next four months, there were huge rallies, occupations, and we were moving towards an all-out general strike. And so I covered this. And over the years, it's kind of been forgotten by history. It's one of the great social uprisings in North American history, but it's rarely mentioned in Canadian histories, and there hasn't been a lot written about it. So over the years, I continued writing. I wrote magazines, newspapers, books. And a few years ago, I thought, you know, it's a really important thing to document where there's still people around to talk about it. And so I decided to do a book on it. Before we dive into the history, talk a bit more about the book. How did you approach writing it? 
Like I say, at the time, I covered a lot of the events. I covered some of the benchmark protests and various rallies and meetings and different things. So I already had a foundation, and I had interviewed a lot of the people who had been involved in it already or knew them from my own activist background and writing in the underground press and that kind of thing. So it wasn't that hard to figure out who were the people that I wanted to talk to about this. So I set out to do those interviews and other research, compiling the information I needed on this event. And a lot of people were really willing to talk about it because, you know, it was a really important event in their lives as well. You know, they were interested in having it documented and having some of their experiences retold. The style I used was sort of a literary nonfiction kind of style in which I talk a lot about the events through people's experiences. I think it's just more engaging reading than writing a long treatise full of statistics and whatnot, although that has its place too. My basic point of view was that this book wasn't just about 1983, that it took a long time to get to that moment in BC history where there would be that kind of social resistance. And to me, the politics and people's personal lives are mixed, you know, the personal is political, the political is personal. So a lot of what happened, I go through various activists' lives and how they became politicized and what they were doing in 83. Like a lot of them had come through the union movement or the women's movement or the new left of the 60s and 70s. And by the time this uprising took place in 1983, there was a lot of people that had had all sorts of experience as organizers in different social movements. So when this right-wing legislation came down, the resistance to it was almost immediate and very effective. What were the political culture and the movement culture like in BC in those years? I've thought about whether or not this huge movement could have taken place anywhere else in North America at the time. I don't know, maybe Quebec, maybe the San Francisco Bay Area, But BC has, and at that particular point, had a very illustrious legacy of social activism that went back many, many decades and was known as a place that had a significant progressive movement. Back in the 30s, for example, there was a huge amount of activism during the Depression in Vancouver, all sorts of occupations and street actions. I mean, there had been a very active CCF here, Communist Party. The Wobblies were actually named in Vancouver, the legendary syndicalist union. The name was coined here, as was Greenpeace, as was Occupy Wall Street later. So there was a long tradition, plus a more recent tradition to 1983 had been in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a very active new left that formed all over the world or huge parts of the world anyway. And in Vancouver, it was particularly active. And that included the radical student movement, women's movement, beginnings of the environmental movement, the gay movement, the countercultural activists. Traditionally, before that, the left had organized almost always around class, unions, workers. But starting in the 60s, there were a lot of these other movements in which people organized around race and gender, etc. And that was particularly active in BC, those movements that emerged from that new left. So you had this as the background, plus the unions here, as we'll see at the end of this movement and the the anticlimactic ending of solidarity, there were a lot of conservatives in leadership roles in some unions, but also there was a sizable number of very active progressive unions as well at the time in BC. So when you combine all of this stuff, there was a real base for activism 
In the wake of this shock at these 27 pieces of legislation attacking union rights, attacking education, attacking Medicare, attacking the women's movement, attacking human rights protections, and so on, what did people initially do to build towards some kind of resistance? A lot of people within the movement felt that, you know, it was a test. You have to put it in a larger context. This was the era of Reaganism and Margaret Thatcher. And in a way, this was bringing those politics to Canada. And if you were going to see if those politics could work here, where better to test than the most left-wing province, which was BC at the time? So the response to it was immediate. In terms of the forms that the response took, the unions initially formed this movement called Operation Solidarity. BC Federation of Labor was the main component, but virtually every other union was involved as well. And they built towards opposing particularly the union part of the legislation. But they were linked with this other movement that formed shortly after that called the Solidarity Coalition. As I mentioned earlier, they had all the social movements that were included in this, the environmentalists, the gay movement, the women's movement. They all had representatives in the Solidarity Coalition. So initially there were some mass protests. I don't know if you know Vancouver, but there's Empire Stadium, which was a major venue in the city at the time. There was a huge rally there. There was a couple of major rallies at the legislature in Victoria. And there were also like occupations that took place. In particular, there was one at a mental health facility in the interior in Kamloops, in which solidarity workers there took it over and began running it under their management, took over that facility. As it went on, there were more and more protests. And what emerged eventually was, what is the end point in all this? And the end point for a lot of people soon became the idea of a general strike, which had a long history among unions and the left and groups like the Wobblies. And the idea was that this was one of those rare moments where you could mobilize an entire province virtually against the far right. And so plans for that started developing. There was plans for unions one by one, or a little more than one by one. Sometimes it would be two or three at a time. There were plans for the unions to start going out, and they would be supported in the streets and elsewhere by all these community activists that were also involved. So it started off with these street protests and mass rallies and occupations, and it was building towards an all-out general strike against the right-wing government. What kinds of grassroots work were the people who wanted a general strike to happen doing with their members and communities to build it? I think people generally go about their daily life just coping, you know. They realize something's a little off. There's all sorts of things that go on in life that are a little unsettling from time to time and whatnot. But they're coping and they're trying to get by as best they can for themselves and their family and whatnot. And they're pretty much doing it alone most of the time. But every once in a while, something happens in a society where you're no longer doing it alone. You know, that basically people want some freedom in their life. And so basically what happens is every once in a while opportunity arises in which people can go for that, can make fundamental changes in the society and in their lives. I'll just give you a couple examples. There was France in 1968. There were some student protests. They were repressed by the state viciously. Soon unions were involved. Soon there was an all-out general strike in May, June 1968, in which people didn't just go on strike. They literally occupied the factories. They started running things the way a different sort of society, a socialist society, would run things. They started operating things under the self-management of the workers and providing free services to people. And all of this took place in the general strike. So part of the idea of the general strike for some people 
not for everybody, but for some people, is that you don't just go out on strike, but you continue operating the society. You basically supplant the existing powers that be, and you operate the society for the benefit of people. So if you continue running the buses, for example, only now they're free, that's a way of, besides showing a working example of how a different society could function, is also engender support amongst the public for the strike. So historically, a lot of the goals of a general strike have been to actually make fundamental social change. Other people see a general strike as less broad and more just to deal with the specific issues that people are being confronted with by a government or by management or whatever. But as I was saying before, I think that generally people do want to be more free. And every once in a while, and these things usually happen by surprise, a movement will just explode on the scene, like it happened in France in 68. More recent movements, there was the anti-racism protests that swept much of the world in 2020. There was the Occupy Wall Street movement. You can go back through history, like 1848, there was movements across Europe. And in a way, what happened to BC in 1983 was our social uprising. When you talk about how it came together, there were these mass meetings all the time, very democratic meetings, people talking about all sorts of aspects of life at these regular meetings, campuses that were shut down. They would have, you know, almost daily meetings on some campuses talking about how they were participating in this strike, what was going on. And it was just building towards something completely unique in a way for North America. I mean, there had been some earlier strikes. I mean, 1919, for example, there were general strikes in Winnipeg and Seattle. And there was a real sense of growing outrage and a real sense of democracy, of participation. People felt they could participate in this and their voices would be heard. And as far as people like in Solidarity Coalition, there was all sorts of educational events and events talking about the issues and talking about the alternatives to it and sometimes talking about general strike. And for example, some of the unions like KMOD, Uh, That's the Canadian Association of Industrial, Mechanical, and Allied Workers, which was a relatively small, independent Canadian union with quite left politics that had a significant presence in BC's mining sector. They made a real effort at touring the province to all of their locals, uh, talking about what was going on and the possibility of a general strike and that kind of thing. And it was divided solidarity, by the way. Not everybody in it wanted this general strike. There were some conservative forces within some of the unions, for example, who were dead set against it. But for the people who wanted something transformative to happen here, they were very effectively getting the word out about what a general strike was and what the possibilities were here and that it might be the only end game for this thing. You know, there was a committee for the general strike, for example, that literally was a collection of left organizations. And then there were people within the unions, you know, some of the unions like the Carpenters Union and the Fishermen's Union and the Farm Workers Union were quite left wing leadership and they were supportive of a broad general strike. But there were some of the unions within the BC Fed leadership that had leaders who were quite conservative who didn't care about repealing all of the legislation. They only cared about the union legislation. Some of these people, like most notably Jack Monroe from the IWA, the woodworkers, by all reports, didn't really like the Solidarity Coalition, the social movements, the women's organizations and the gay organizations and those people and really didn't want to be linked up with them. And he wasn't alone. There were others like him within the BC Fed that really were hoping to shut the thing down. They did not want a general strike. I think for one thing, they realized a lot of their rank and file members in their own unions would probably support it. And they like to control things. 
How did all of that play out in the way that the struggle ended? Here's what ends up happening. Early November, there was a plan, a scenario to shut down the province. It started with teachers going out and the BC Government Employees Union going out and all sorts of other unions were scheduled to go out, build towards an all-out strike. At this point, first of all, Art Kuby, who had been quite progressive through the whole thing and was the president of the BC Federation of Labour, got very sick at the time and he was out of the picture. And some of the more conservative elements within the BC Federation of Labour just wanted to shut it down. Like people were allied with Jack Monroe, who I just mentioned. And so he was dispatched to the interior town of Kelowna, where Bill Bennett, the premier, lived for a meeting with Bennett. And he came out of the meeting and had a press conference, the two of them, and announced that they had an accord and that the accord would basically shut down the general strike scenario and essentially shut down solidarity. In exchange, they got some things on the union front around BC government employees union who were out, but very, very little overall, virtually nothing considering what the province had risen for and the uprising and upheaval that had taken place for four months. People were just gobsmacked by this thing. I mean, the solidarity activists and much of the general public, how undemocratically it all ended suddenly and how this small group within the BC Fed was able to meet with the premier and just shut it down without any vote amongst uh, components of it, without any vote amongst the unions, uh, without any real participation, especially considering the movement had been so ultra-democratic up till that point. It was a very transformative moment here. It looked like there could be some fundamental shifts take place. People were questioning how things were done in this society, and people were participating. And there was all these democratic meetings and talk of stopping this entire legislative package and maybe even more. And when it suddenly was shut down, there was visceral outrage, really. People were so angry towards the union leaders, particularly Monroe, for having done this. But the thing I think that's really important is that despite this anticlimactic ending and the lessons learned, you know, that you don't allow things like that to happen, I think that the overall legacy of solidarity is much greater than its anticlimactic ending. I think it basically showed how people from various backgrounds, various political ideas can join together and form a powerful coalition. And I think a lot of the message of that is that if you're going to make fundamental social change, you have to do not just with people that are exactly like you. It takes a coalition like this. And despite its failings and its inner conflicts, and there were more than just the conflict I mentioned between the conservative union leaders and everybody else. But despite all of that, there was the idea that all these people had been organizing in their own silos, like maybe around environmental issues or around the feminist movement or whatever, were suddenly organizing with each other around the same thing, which was stopping Socrat devastation. And so the idea that they could do that, I think, is really the legacy of the solidarity movement. Are there any other lessons you would take from these events in 1983 for social movements today? It's funny you say that because when I started writing the book, a big part of the motivation was that this really hadn't been documented very much historically. And I felt it was important. I just wanted to really document that event and write about it. I thought it was really significant to have it down there for future generations to read about. But while I was writing it the last few years, a whole other motivation came along, which was at least as important. And what that was, there was a rise of far-right governments around the world, you know, 
And I think the legacy of it is that it's sort of a lesson. The Solidarity Movement of BC 1983 is a lesson on how to mobilize virtually an entire community against a far-right government. And, you know, there were some divisions and some problems at the end, but for much of those four months, it was incredibly effective. And it was able to mobilize people in a way that no one had seen before here or has seen since. Given its magnitude and significance, why do you think that this struggle in particular has been so forgotten? Vancouver at the time and BC just weren't on the radar the way, say, Paris or New York were. You know, I mean, if this event had happened in Paris or happened in New York, like France 68 or Occupy Wall Street later, there would have been all sorts of books and documentaries and everything made on it. But it happened in BC. And like I say, at the time, it was not, you know, far up there on the radar. And it kind of slipped through the cracks of history to a large extent. There wasn't a lot done about it. There's been some other things, but very little. Stepping back a little from this book specifically, as someone who has spent his career as a writer, what work do you think the written word in whatever form can do in the world? How can it serve as an intervention to advance the kinds of visions for a better world that, for instance, manifested in the Solidarity Movement? Well, I don't know. It's like I actually worked as a film critic for a while. I remember talking to a filmmaker who had been a lefty in her youth, and she said to me, you know, one film can't change the world. And I said, that's true, but it can change one person's world. And also it can contribute to the change in the world. I mean, I would certainly not say this book's going to fundamentally change, you know, huge numbers of people. But what I would say, though, is that it can contribute to that process. I think that collectively, all the things that have been written about this kind of activism and all the things that have been written about Canadian resistance and resistance beyond Canada and, you know, just stuff that contributes to people looking at things in a more humanistic way whether it's cultural stuff, whether it's overtly political writings. And I think subcultures play a huge role also in shaping consciousness and resistance, whether it's the counterculture, hippie counterculture of the 60s and 70s or the later punk movement or various other things. What I'm trying to say here is I think this book or any of these things, I think collectively they really shape the way people think. I wouldn't be so presumptuous as to say my book in particular, but what I would say is hopefully it's part of the overall collective things being done, whether it's cultural stuff or whether it's histories that shed light on and encourage people to consider the world they live in and their place in the world and their lives in this world. I just look at it as a collective thing that collectively, cumulatively, all these things that people read and experience culturally, as screwed up as the world is now, It would be even a lot worse if all of that stuff wasn't happening and affecting millions of people. So hopefully it's just part of that cumulative impact on people. And what I was trying to do specifically with it, as I said to you before, is A, document one of the great uprisings in North American history, and B, look at it as a lesson that's very timely right now. You have been listening to my interview with David Spanner. We've been talking about his book, Solidarity, Canada's Unknown Revolution of 1983, published by Ronsdale Press. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to TalkingRadical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.